look at verse number 17. This is the end of Paul's letter to his protege, Timothy, his son from the faith. And Paul writes and tells Timothy this. Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they, what are the next two words? All right, let's try that again. So charge them that they do good, and that they, what are the next two words? Uh, that was better, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate or share, laying up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Well, this series is unashamedly a series about giving and serving. And I want to give a couple disclaimers up front on why this series is important, what this is and what this is not. So this is important for you because your Christian walk should include a number of points where you grow, where you grow deeper, where you are challenged to do more or push further. And one of those points where you should be challenged to grow is actually trusting God with your finances, even trusting God with your time, and in real, tangible, practical ways. And this series is designed to help you see what the Bible says in regards to what you should do with your money, but it's much more than that. We'll see that this morning. This is designed to help you see why you should do that, and even beyond that, what the potential pitfalls are for you if you do or don't do that. So. This, I'm going to do my best to kind of bring this whole scope and full picture of finances and serving and what the Bible actually says to you and says to me in light of our wealthiness, in light of what we have, our time, our talent, and our treasure. Now, if you are someone who's naturally skeptical of a pastor getting up in church and talking for a sermon or a series of sermons on money, let me try to help you. I'm not going to be able to eliminate your skepticism, but I'm going to at least maybe minimize it a bit. So, first of all, I understand that some of you were naturally skeptical just by your background. You had a church that just constantly talked about money, and you had someone write you a letter along the lines and tell you that you need to give more, and you're not playing your part, or you uh, had someone that mismanaged money, and you have felt burnt by that. So, I get that. That's certainly not our goal through this. But I want you to know that this series for us is proactive rather than reactive. So what I mean by that is this series is not birthed out of some meeting we had when we got together and said, you know what, we could use some more money. Why don't we just go teach on, on giving and see what the Bible has to say about that? That meeting never took place. This we've actually mentioned for eight months or so now. This was going to come. Plan on this. You're going to hear this from the pulpit. And this is something from our church uh, this is something that is entirely proactive. This is not a, a reaction to, hey, we need more money. Last week, we took up an offering. There was enough money to get the budget, pay all the bills, plus a little bit extra. The week before that, there was enough money, plus a little bit extra, and so on and so forth. Uh, if you doubt that at all, we just two months ago had our state of the church, where we took about an hour and ten minutes, and we just dived real deep into uh, income versus expense, budget, and what money's coming in and what money's going out. And we talked all about that and gave brochures and we looked at that. And the moral of the story for, for that meeting was God has been 
good to us. If there's money in the bank and everything's great, and if you doubt that, it's on the website. You can go listen to that. You can watch the video of that. And you can see that for yourself, but the real numbers. This is designed to be really for your benefit and for your help and more than it is for the help and the benefit of the finance office of Harvest Baptist Church. So I want to put that disclaimer out there up front. Some of you naturally are like, okay, I buy that. Some of you don't, and that's fine. We'll get there, and hopefully as we walk through the series, you'll begin to see where we're going and what this really does mean for you and how this is intended really to help you in your life. So I want us to look and reread 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And today we're going to bite off verse number 17 and try to wrestle with what this is saying. So Paul tells Timothy, charge them or command them or challenge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded nor trusted in certain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. This morning, I'm going to challenge you to do three things. Okay, here are the three things. Your challenge is to accept the label, acknowledge the side effects, and adjust the heart. So I want to start with accepting the label. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, tell those people that are rich in this world. And when he says rich, he's actually talking about money and wealth. We are rich spiritually in Christ Jesus. We know biblically that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might be made rich spiritually. So we can celebrate that and love that and praise the Lord that we're rich in Christ Jesus. But this is specifically talking about actual money, dollars, wealth, tangible wealth. And he's telling Timothy, look, tell those people that are rich to do A, B, C, and D. Now, there's, there's a problem here because... If no one ever thinks that they are actually rich, then everyone just discounts this passage and we move past it and say, well, that applies to the rich people. That doesn't apply to me, right? And my goal this morning for about 10 minutes is to try to help you accept the fact that you are, in fact, rich. Like, literally, you're rich. I thought about having, like, at this moment, confetti fall from the ceiling and, like, blaring, you know, some air horns and just celebration is in order, people, okay? We're rich. You're rich. I'm rich. Collectively, our church is rich. That is a, a true story. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. 99% of you are thinking, no, 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 no. I'm not poor, but I'm not rich. Rich is the other guy. You know, rich is my uncle who I hope I'll get a piece of that inheritance one day. Rich is that person that lives in that other neighborhood. Rich is the person that drives that car. I'm not rich. So let me help you grapple with this and come to the conclusion together that we are rich. All right, if you have ever driven your perfectly working car, maybe the window didn't work or something, but you drove your perfectly working car onto a car lot, and you gave a salesman your keys, and then you gave them extra money on top of your keys to get into a different, perfectly working car and drive away and go home to your garage and park that perfectly working car next to another perfectly working car, you're rich. Now, if you haven't done that, try this one. If you've ever opened up your fridge and you have taken out the old food, old food, a.k.a food that's leftovers that I just really don't feel like eating that anymore, and you've thrown that in the trash to make space for new food from the grocery, you're rich. 
If you have ever stared at a closet of clothes or a drawer full of clothes and told yourself, I don't have anything to wear, <laughs> you're rich. All right, if you have a pet and you're feeding that pet with your money to make it bigger, larger, and fatter, and you have no intention to eat that pet or use its fur as clothing, you're rich. Now, I'm not saying eat your pet, okay? I'm just telling you, accept the fact that you're rich. You literally are. We, we wrestle with, and we looked at this last week, the problems that we concern ourselves with. You know, I have bad cell phone coverage. It ruins our day. That's a rich people problem. Where should I go on vacation? That's a rich people problem. Bad internet connections and computer problems, and I have to fix my car. You have a car to fix. You're rich. Like we are as a group of people and individually in our family units, we are people that wrestle with rich people problems because we are in fact rich. Don't believe me yet. Think about this. Most of our society, and this is unique to kind of our little slice of time, most of our society, people go out and they work a five-day work week. Now, some of you don't. Some of you work extra days. Some of you work, um, some of you work two jobs. Some of it's because you need it. Some of it's because you're a workaholic. But many people work a five-day work week. And think about the implications of that, okay? We work five days to have enough money and food and clothing and shelter and health care to last us seven days. Many families will have a family of four or five or six, and they'll send one of the five out into the workplace to earn enough money, clothing, food, all the rest of it for seven days for five or six people. Like that's possible in our culture. That's unique. There's a whole lot of cultures historically and even currently where that, that just would boggle their minds that you could do something like that. But we have those means, we have the availability based on here we are in the 21st century as American people. And the fact of the matter is literally we are the richest people in the history of the world. And I know that we want to look at the oil tycoon over in Dubai and say that they're rich, I'm not rich, but we're rich. Statistically, okay, I'm going to give you a fact, I'm going to give you a stat. If your household income combines for $48,000 or more, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world currently, and this is the richest generation in history. Now, you may say, oh, I'm not 48,000. Okay, let's say 37, 35,000. Okay, maybe you're in the top 3%. The bottom line is, historically, but ignore historically, even currently, you are rich. You have money. I'm rich. I have money. All of us are. Because just the nature of how God has blessed us, making us American, giving us the education we have, the job that we have, we are, we're the one percenters, okay? We like to talk about the one percenters. What we say that and what we typically talk about one percenters, we're talking about the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. Really, historically and currently, we are the one percent of the world. We have money, we have disposable income, we have things that we want to spend on, but somehow, some way, we really struggle with admitting that we're rich. Now, why is that? I think part of the reason why is really the same reason and the same struggle that someone who has anorexia struggles with. If you've known someone in your family, if you've ever counseled someone who has anorexia, you would know that almost all of them have something in common. They're all thin. The problem with people that are anorexic is not that they're starving themselves because they actually need to become thin. They're already thin. The problem is that when they look in the mirror, they don't see thin. 
They see something different. They see something that's actually detached from reality. And our problem when it comes to admitting that we're rich is that when we look in the mirror, we don't feel rich. We don't see ourselves as rich. So we tell ourselves that we're not. But in all actuality, that's detached from reality. You are, you should be able to look in the mirror and say, I'm rich. Not in a braggadocious way, not in an arrogant way, but just God has blessed us. And what happens is if we can't admit that we actually are rich, we get so self-absorbed and consumed with becoming rich that we never stop and just say, hey, I've actually reached it. I've actually arrived. I am blessed. I'm rich. There was a study done by Gallup years ago, and they wanted to see how different socioeconomic groups actually defined rich because it's a very subjective term. And what they found is that rich to people was roughly twice what they currently made. So if someone was making thirty-five, dollars $40,000 a year, then the person who makes $80,000 a year was rich. If the person was making seventy-five dollars or eighty, dollars the person making one hundred fifty dollars in their eyes was rich. If the person making one hundred fifty, dollars dollars so on and so forth. Money Magazine did something similarly. That they polled their readership, and they know their readership, the average wealth of their readership is $2.5 million per household income. If you're reading Money Magazine, congratulations to you. Uh, but they know it's $2.5 million. And you know what Money Magazine found their readership thought rich was? Five million. The 2.5 millionaires thought the five millionaires were rich. It's always, it's not where we're at. We fool ourselves. It's always what someone else has or they have twice as much as me. So I'll define that as rich. And what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is rich is a moving target. Rich is something that we never, we never want to admit to ourselves. We want to think there's more to have. Eventually I'll get that and then I'll become rich. And we know that this is foolish. We see people that get richness and, and they never, they want more. They want more. They want more. They want more. Why? Because we can't actually stop and just say, hey, I'm rich. And the sad part about it is studies show that the richer people become, the smaller percentage of their income they actually give away. They're actually less generous in terms of percentage than if they had less money. And this is something that should concern us. We should be able to step back and just say, thank you, God, for what you've given to me and acknowledge the fact that the vast majority of you drove here in a car today. That means that you have money. You had clothing options, multiple options that didn't have holes all in them. That means you have money. We should be able to admit to ourselves that we are rich. Now, being rich or having money doesn't make you good at being rich any more than having lots of kids makes you a good parent. So it's not just, hey, we need to get money. We actually need to begin to be good at being rich. And this is what First Timothy really addresses to try to help people that are rich be good at being rich. But that process begins with us being willing to own the label and just accept the fact and admit to ourselves that, hey, I'm rich. So this morning, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the person closest to you and just tell them, hey, I'm rich. Go ahead. You have my permission. (laughs) Didn't that feel good? That you've always wanted to say that to somebody, that that you were rich. That you had money. There you go. <laughs> rich is rich. That's right. <laughs> now, I'm not, you're, okay, you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not filthy rich. I'm not like private jet rich. I know. 
But that doesn't change the fact that you actually are indeed testifiably rich compared to history and compared to the world currently. And there are, there's a plethora of books out there that are telling people how to get rich. And we don't need more books on that. We need books for our society. We need books to tell people how to be rich. And this is what the Bible, in fact, does for three verses. It tells you, it tells me how to be rich. But we have to at least admit the fact that we are first and foremost. And I'm not talking about admitting that I'm not poor. There's a difference between saying I'm not poor, most of you would say that, and saying I'm rich. Now, what you're thinking is, no, I'm not rich, I'm middle class. That's my point. Middle class America is rich. So you are, I am, celebration is in order, hip, hip, hooray. Let's just accept the label. We are, in fact, rich. This passage of Scripture applies to you, and it applies to me. I know someone else has more money than you. I know that those Joneses you're trying to keep up with. I, I get that. But you're rich. Second, acknowledge the side effects. So it's not just, hey, you're rich, congratulations, see you later. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, Look, you need to tell them, you need to warn them. There are some negative side effects here. And I want us to see what those are. Verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world. Two things in the negative, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. Arthur Schopenhauer said, wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. Isn't that a side effect of riches? The side effects, really, there, there are many. But Paul lists exactly two, and he says that there are, in fact, some unique pitfalls to your and my richness. There are some things that we can get caught in and trapped in because we do, in fact, have money. And he doesn't just say, Timothy, go tell these people what to do with their money. He says, Timothy, start with warning them. Start with educating them. It's not what you do with your money. It's what your money's going to do with you. It's how it's going to affect you. And he says, tell them this and warn them of this, that there are some dizzying effects that money can have on its beholders. So tell them. First is this. What are the side effects? Well, that they be not high-minded. Arrogance. A side effect of money and wealth and being first world is that you would become arrogant, that I would become arrogant. Arrogance can be defined as having an inflated sense of self-worth. And it only makes sense that when your net worth is inflated, so too does your self-worth become inflated. And this is a, a pitfall for those that have disposable income, for those that have money, that the more that you possess and the more that you accumulate and the more that you have at your disposal, the greater your potential to acquire this distorted sense of reality and for you to start to become arrogant inside of your heart. And this, this is bred by our culture. Our rich culture tells us to continue to try to get rich and that we're not rich enough. And this starts early on for us. This starts in elementary and in junior high and in high school, does it not? What happened to you when you were in seventh grade and you, well, I don't know if you did, I did, you got, those, you got those new tennis shoes, right? Those two overpriced slabs of rubber with some string and some glue and a little swoosh on the side of it. But you got your new kicks on, and all of a sudden you're walking a little taller through the, through the school hallways, aren't you? People are noticing, and you're trying to act like you don't notice that they're noticing. And here you are, all of a sudden you got a little swagger in your step. All of a sudden you feel good 
because I got my new shoes on, right? This is why you look at your closet and you see all those options and you don't, you don't want to wear any of that. And you tell yourself, I don't have anything to wear. Why? Because you want to put something new on and you want to start to feel a little bit better. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you, maybe you couldn't afford the new sneakers. You were still rich. You just weren't as rich. Maybe you couldn't afford them and you were the opposite. You, you felt a little bit of shame that mom and dad were dropping you off in, you know, that car. You were cool with inviting your friends over to your house till you went over to your other friend's house and you saw how big theirs was and now I don't want to invite them over to my house anymore because I feel a little ashamed because we don't have as much. What is this? This is arrogance breeding in, in your heart and other people's hearts. It's you beginning to attach yourself and your pride and your identity to your riches and there is this propensity that when you have riches that you're going to become an arrogant person. And 99% of us contribute to this problem, whether you think of yourself rich and you become arrogant yourself, or you assist others in their arrogance. This is why James talks about those with money and those that don't have money. He says, church, treat them the same. He says, it makes no difference. Why? Because we have this natural inclination inside of ourselves that if someone has money or they made a business decision that worked out well in their favor and now they have more money than us, what do we start to do? We start to think a little bit higher of them. We start to put a little bit more stock into their opinions. Ever met someone that, in all honesty, on a one to 10 scale, they were like a six attractive and then you found out they had money? What happened? They became eight attractive like that. Why? Because you begin to think more of them. What are you doing? You're assisting someone in their arrogance. This is why, just because I, it's so natural for us as humans to do this, this is why I never look at what people give. I have no idea what any of you give, nor do I want to know, because I don't want it to distort my treatment of people and to know who gives what. Because there's this natural tendency there for arrogance to start to breed itself, whether it's in your own heart or whether you're helping someone else put it in, in their heart, that this is a pitfall, this is a side effect of money, of wealth, of being rich, that you would be high-minded. Paul also says it's not just that they would not be high-minded, but then he says this, nor trust in uncertain riches. Arrogance is a side effect, but migration of hope is a side effect. As you begin to accumulate more, and all of you can relate with this, your trust begins to migrate from Jesus Christ and his shed blood and what he did for you to your wealth, to your nest egg, to your savings account, to your 401k, to your life insurance policy. Your trust begins to migrate there away from God. And if you, if you have done even the most basic steps of financial planning, and hear me on this, if you've done the most basic steps, you have just a small savings account, or you're just contributing a little bit to that employer 401k match, or you have a life insurance policy, you're standing in the river with a current pulling you towards self-sufficiency. And you're beginning to, whether you realize it or not, trust in your riches and put your hope there rather than in the living God. I experienced this just a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago. My wife, who's here, and I didn't tell her I was going to tell this story, so forgive me, babe. But my wife, who's here, asked me the question, kind of out of the blue, what am I going to do if you die? And I don't know what she's planning over there, but <laughs> she asked it. 
And you know what my response was to my shame? My response wasn't, well, we're going to trust God, and he knows what he's doing, and he's sovereign, and he'll see you through, and he'll give you another husband maybe who's not as good looking as me, but maybe. <laughs> that wasn't my response. My response was, well, the life insurance policy, it's enough. It's pay for the funeral. It'll pay for the house. You'll have a little bit of money in the bank. You'll be able to, you know, that was my response. My response was, let's trust in the, in the life insurance policy because that'll take care of you rather than trusting in God. And unwittingly, in my own heart, what's happening? My trust and my hope is migrating away from God and towards riches and towards wealth, and that's a problem. And as we are rich, as we become richer, this happens more and more and more. And the Bible talks about this often. Proverbs 18 tells us that the rich man's wealth is his strong city, as in high wall is his own conceit. What's that saying? The rich man tends to say, I'll fortify myself. My protection, my barrier is my wealth. My barrier is my riches, and I'm going to trust in that. Proverbs 30, remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. And on the riches and the lots of food, he says this, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who's the Lord? The Solomon understood that the more I have and the more I'm satisfied, then I'm going to have this tendency to deny God and to say, who is he? Now I can trust in something else. And the problem with trusting in riches is twofold. So number one, there's the problem of you should be trusting in God, but you're trusting your wealth. That's the most profound problem. But even if there was no God factor, if there was no God in the equation, and you didn't have that option, it would still be problematic to trust in your riches. Because what does Paul say? He says one word, one adjective about these riches in 1 Timothy 6.17, that they trust, don't trust in uncertain riches. The problem with that money is that you can't bank on it. This is what Proverbs tells us. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not for riches, certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. What a word picture. Let's put some wings on that dollar bill. It's flying away. People have said money talks. It says goodbye. And that's the truth about money. It's uncertain. You can't actually bank on that. The stock market and Black Tuesday may happen again this Tuesday. That bank where your money's at may go bankrupt and it may be all gone. That life insurance policy may not work out. You can't trust in those riches. There's, number one, because you should be trusting in God, but even if that wasn't there, it's a bad option for you to put your hope and your security and for you to feel as though now I'm, I feel good about myself and my state because of the money that I have, because of the financial options that are at my disposal, because of the nest egg. Bad option. Here's a question for you to help you consider this and analyze your own heart if you're trusting in your riches. How much money would it take for you to secure yourself against all possibilities. What, how much money would it take for you to actually give a perimeter and secure yourself against all bad possibilities? You know what the answer is? You can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible for you. Cancer don't care how much money you have. 
That person who's against you is going to be a thorn in your flesh and wreak havoc and, and be your enemy. They don't care how much money you have. They may be your enemy because you got money. You can't do it. So don't try to do it. Don't put your trust there. Don't put your hope there. Here's another question for you. How deeply would your heart be affected if all your money was gone? If that was actually a Ponzi scheme and it wasn't a good investment and that was gone, how deeply would you be affected? How much would it mess with all of us? Let's be honest. It messed with all of us a bit. How much would that mess with you? Well, I've, I've worked 20 years and, and now I'm owed my pension. I'm about to retire. They lay me off. And we've seen that happen, haven't we? And it's sad. It's heartbreaking that companies are, are so concerned about their own wealth and their own money. But that happens. And then the retirement plans are out the window. If your trust is rooted there, if your hope is rooted there, if your security is rooted there, it's going to let you down. It's going to be a problem. So Paul tells Timothy, look, tell them that are rich. Tell them the side effects. Tell them, look, don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't think of yourself more because you have some money now. Don't, don't trust in your riches. I would say this. If wealth came over the counter as a medicine, it'd have a warning label on it. Here's the warning label that would be on wealth. Warning may cause arrogance. While taking this wealth, extra precautions should be taken not to offend people. If taken for prolonged periods, it may impair perception, causing hope to migrate. That's what your money has the potential to do to you. So be warned and know those side effects. So what do we do? How do we counter that? Well, we adjust the heart. How do you adjust the heart? Well, Paul tells us. He says, don't be high-minded. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but it's an implied trust here. Trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Here's how you adjust your heart. Here's how you are able to possess money without money possessing you. Number one, you tell yourself this, I will trust God. And that means no one else and nothing else. You tell your heart over and over and over and over again, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to bank on God. I'm going to find my security in God. I'm going to find my identity in God. I will trust God. This is a statement of, I will not trust in riches, but I will trust in him who richly provides. I will trust in God. Isn't this what Proverbs 3 tells us to do? To trust in the Lord with all of our heart. All of it. There's no measure of it that should rest in our finances. And in all our ways acknowledge him and he shall direct our paths. A stock market may crash tomorrow. You may, you may lose it all. You may, you may not have a, a penny to your name. You may actually be worse off than that. You may have pennies against your name. But that's not where we trust. That's not where we rest. We trust in who? God. Secondly, you tell yourself this, I will be grateful. Paul says, trust in the living God, but then he gives us this statement, which is so key to all of this, but trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Those that are good at being rich understand that all that I have is a gift from God. He gave it to me. He gives richly all things to enjoy. That this is actually, this is not a byproduct of my own aptitude. This is not a byproduct of my hard work. This is not a byproduct of what I've done. You say, but wait, I went to college and I got the degree and I have worked hard. Yeah, great, but you were born in America. Who made that happen? Not you. You could have worked just that hard in a third world country and you wouldn't have this much. 
Who gave you that intellect? Who gave you that ability? Why is it that you're able to wake up this morning and come to church and go to work tomorrow? It's all God. It's a gift from him that he has given to you, and that should produce gratitude. This is me telling you you're rich. Some of you thought I was going to reverse it on you and say, now feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. Feel grateful. Feel thankful. Feel glad that God has entrusted me with this. He's given it to you for a reason, for you to do something with it now. So not, not guilt, gratitude. That God has given me richly all things to enjoy that he has, he has entrusted me with this. This is what 2 Corinthians 9 tells us. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, and that sounds like us as America, enriched in everything unto all bountifulness. We look for ways to waste our money, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. Paul says this enrichment, this bounty, should cause you to feel thankfulness. It should cause you to feel gratitude in your heart that God has given to you. It should cause you to step back and to say, God, I praise you and I thank you and you're who I'm trusting. I know you've given this all to me. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I trust in you and I'm glad to you. Haven't you ever met someone who managed their richness well? Someone you thought was rich. They probably didn't think they were rich, but you thought they were rich. And you saw them just be normal and not be arrogant. Ever seen someone who does that and they take their wealth and they actually use it for good? And they begin to use it to advance the kingdom of God? Isn't that refreshing? To see someone who not just has wealth, but they've learned how to be rich, how to act when they have money. For me, the best example I have of this is a man named Ron Kendall. We called him Brother Ron growing up, but I spent my summers from third grade all the way through high school all summer long at a camp. Indian Creek Baptist Camp was the name of it, and the camp was a byproduct of Ron Kendall, who Ron, in, in my estimation, was a rich man. I was middle class, and I was rich, but I viewed him as rich because he had, you know, millions. And he was a, a member of our church, and he had a heart for camps. He really thought that young people's hearts and lives could be changed, and people would be saved, and, and he loved camp. And he told our church, I will buy and fund a camp if you'll run the program. So he bought 160-some acres in southern Indiana, and there we began to build a camp. And over the years, historically and even currently, he continues to invest hundreds of thousands. He's invested millions in that camp. Just a raw piece of land that now has dorms and tabernacles and dining halls and miniature golf courses and swimming pools, and all kinds of crazy stuff for kids to come and enjoy and learn about the Lord. But I watched Ron Kendall growing up through my adolescence not just invest his money, but I watched him be humble. I, I didn't see any arrogance at all. I saw a man who would come up and would mow the grass on his own time. I saw Brother Ron in his overalls in the dumpster stomping the trash down so that we could fit more trash inside of the dumpster. And seeing him use his money and his richness to further the kingdom of God, to not be arrogant, to not be trapped in the pitfalls, to not trust in it, but to continue to trust in the Lord, to see him distribute willingly and be generous was refreshing to me. It taught me a lesson. And while we all struggle with admitting that we are in fact rich, we are. And that should be us. People that look at what God has given and it causes us to trust him more. 
People who look at what God has given and it causes us to be grateful, to say, Lord, thank you. How in the world am I so spoiled? How in the world do I have so much that you have given to me? And Paul says, Timothy, tell them that are rich. Look, here's some side effects. Don't be arrogant. Don't trust in that, but trust in God. Be grateful. And he's going to continue this thought, and we'll unpack this thought next week, where he's going to say, beyond the heart, it starts with your heart. It starts with your mindset. It starts with how you feel inside. But beyond that, he's going to give them, I want us to read verse 18, some practical steps to what they should do. And he says this, that they, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, or willing to share. He says, those that are rich, we who are rich, should leverage that richness for good works, and for being willing to share. Literally, we should leverage that to do more and to give more. That God has entrusted to us much. Maybe not as much as, as that person, but he's given you a lot. And that should spur gratitude. That should spur trust in God. But it should propel us, what we'll see next week, to begin to do more, to begin to give more, and to begin to use that richness for the kingdom of God.